Hello everyone and welcome back to I'm not the book expert but she is. I am Rachel and I am not the expert today. And I'm Maggie and I am the expert and we are once again joined by Lydia who has decided to join us for part two of The Sea of Monsters by Rick Riordan. Hello. Yes and Lydia introduced herself more thoroughly in part one so if you have not listened to part one of The Sea of Monsters yet now would be a good time to because we are not we have moved past that and we are talking about the second part now where we actually get to the sea of monsters indeed um so we're gonna skip over the introductory stuff and we're gonna get right into some trivia time um i had one question and then i think lydia has a question for rachel today so i just made one up so sure (laughs) perfect all right rachel when Odysseus's men encounter Circe, she uses a spell to turn them into pigs. Which Olympian gives Odysseus what he needs to withstand Circe's magic? It's not Athena. Okay, not Athena. I'm going to take a wild guess, purely based on what I know from the book, and say that it was Hermes, because that's who gives... Percy, the vitamin that makes him not a guinea pig anymore. Yeah, yep. that's right, right? I'm right. I'm looking <laughs> right. at Lydia for confirmation because I You're just pulled absolutely this from my right. memory. I was just lost in thought thinking about a horrible movie adaptation of the Odyssey I once watched, which had Hermes entirely gold flying around. That sounds terrible. Like a take. It was hysterical, not intentionally. <laughs> All right, Lydia, what have you got? So now I'm going to give you a trivia question. Okay. So in the book, Circe describes herself as a daughter of Hecate, the goddess of magic. But she's actually more commonly described as having a titan for a parent. Which titan is that? It's not Kronos. Can you give me options or a hint? Does it help if I say that it is the same titan parent of pacifay no (laughs) (laughs) okay um okay uh maggie already gave said not chronos so we're gonna go with your options being uh oh let me think of titan suddenly uranus there is oh what's the who's bob Maggie, remind me who oh, Bob shoot. is. <laughs> I can't remember who he is. With an eye. It's like, oh, so close to another. Listen, if you asked me who was the... Uh, you know what? I think it's pretty obvious that it isn't that one then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give you three options here. Uranus, Oceanus, and Helios. Okay, and it is the same parent as Pacifei. That is correct. Uh, okay, this is a shot in the dark because I have no idea. Is it Oceanus? Oce- I can't say it. It is Helios. Oh, gosh darn Helios. it. Ugh. Okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. That it's was a tough one. one. It's the first one I got wrong. I'm sorry. 
No, it's okay. I the only reason I knew it was because it's mentioned in Cersei by Madeline Miller. That is what reminded me of it. Yes, which mm-hmm. I have not yet read. So yeah, you should. It's fantastic. Also, Bob is Iapetus or Iapetus. I can never pronounce them. I am going to continue to refer to him as Bob. Mm-hmm. I know who Bob is. I haven't met Bob, but I know who Bob is. Mm-hmm. Bob is the best. Oh, because you haven't read... <gasps> she hasn't read the Demigod Files yet. I'm making her do that this season. Because he's that, from one of those short stories. That is my favorite short story of all the short stories. And there are quite a few. It is very good. I'm so excited to talk to you about the Demigod Files. Of all but that's of- for a future episode. Of all the short stories, I've only read Demigods and Magicians cover to cover. Well, for someone who really liked the Kane Chronicles, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I love the Kane Chronicles. They're good books. That will be an eventual future season that I will lead because... Mm-hmm. Yes, Maggie? Nothing. I was just saying I'm very thankful. When all of the, like, kids at the Scholastic Book Fairs were picking out the, like, dragon fancy books, I was picking out the gold Egypt one. hmm So let's talk about The Sea of Monsters, chapters 11 through 20. Clarice has saved Percy, Annabeth, and Tyson from the Hydra, and now it's time to actually enter The Sea of Monsters. On their way to recover the Golden Fleece, our heroes encounter vicious sea monsters, hence Sea of Monsters, powerful sorceresses, and tempting sirens. When they finally reach the home of the Cyclops Polyphemus, he's determined not to give up the Golden Fleece without a fight. Will Percy and the others overcome this monster and get the Fleece back to camp in time? Dun-dun-dun. And just to recap before we talk about the book, um, there are some trigger warnings. The full list is always linked in the description of the episode. Um, So the Sea of Monsters contains ableism, animal attack, blood, bullying, cannibalism is mentioned, as well as drowning, um, homelessness, illness, imprisonment, parental abandonment, violence, and war themes. So those things may come up in our conversation, and just be mindful of that as we talk about this book. So where we left off, Clarice has picked up the gang in her ship that is provided to her father, Ares. And they are now entering the Sea of Monsters. And in order to do so, they need to pass Scylla... Scylla? Scylla? I never remember how to say that. It's Scylla and Charybdis, I believe. According to Emily Wilson. All right. Well, I trust Emily Wilson. I actually have the Odyssey right next to me because I needed to reference something from it. Beautiful. Her pronunciation guide is the only way I get through life. That's a mood. So Scylla and Charybdis are the gatekeepers to the Sea of Monsters. But before we get to them, um, we get a little bit of background of what Clarice has been up to while Percy, Annabeth, and Tyson have been gallivanting aboard the Princess Andromeda. Clarice is the only demigod on this quest. She has her crew of dead Confederate soldiers, again, provided by her father. Um, And... When I forget who asks, but someone asks her, like, hey, weren't you going to bring some other, like, demigods on this quest? Like, what about your cabin mates? And she says, I let them stay back at camp to protect it. Which 
kind of comes off as her being a little bit arrogant like this is my quest and i'm gonna do it myself but i think she's being genuine here Mm -hmm. that she cares about camp and if that means she's going to be in more danger than normal then that's the sacrifice she has to make for camp I also think in this book in particular, we're getting a bit of a theme that Clarice doesn't have very good friends. Mm. Like we had earlier when she fought with the Colchis Bulls and someone stuck like a piece of paper on her back that said, you moo girl. And no one in the Ari's cabin bothered to even tell her about it. And... Even when she says, let me see if I can find the exact quote here. But she's stumbling about whether or not other campers were coming. And she says that she let them stay behind, but you get the idea that they didn't. Okay. She actually says on page 150 of the paperback, um, Percy asks, where are your cabin mates? You were allowed to take two friends with you, weren't you? And she says, they didn't. I let them stay behind to protect the camp. And Percy asks, you mean even the people in your own cabin wouldn't help you? And she doesn't argue with him. She just tells him to shut up. And you start to feel like Clarice doesn't have very good support among even the other Aries campers even though they were cheering when she got elected for the quest mm-hmm. I almost feel like this might be a bit of a stretch but I'm going to go with it for a second and I might disagree with myself by the time I'm done I almost wonder if it kind of seems like Clarice struggles with just human relationships in general like she doesn't seem particularly close to any other campers and partly i'm gonna get back to that she doesn't seem particularly close to any other campers she's definitely not close with her father aries as we see in this chapter which we'll get to shortly um the only person she might be friends The only person she might be close to is her mother, but we don't really get a reference to her until, like, at least halfway through the series. Um, And she's not very physically close to her because Clarice is a year-round camper. Right, and I'm I'm pretty sure it's mentioned, I was trying to look it up, but I can't find it again. I'm pretty sure it's mentioned that she's from, like, Arizona or something. Mm -hmm. Like, the other side of the country. Mm -hmm. So... I almost wonder if her aggressiveness and I want to be careful saying this because I don't want it to sound like this is an excuse for her bullying, but I also wonder if her aggressive, if her aggression and her sort of general nastiness is almost her way of protecting herself in her own way. Like, well, if nobody wants, if nobody wants to be around me, then I'll give them a reason not to. Which I'm not saying if if that I'm not saying that's a very good point or a very logical point for her to be making with herself, but I think it is something that like is fairly reasonable for a fifteen or sixteen year old girl who is kind of struggling a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. I also wonder if maybe Clarice thought she had friends. Mm. Because at camp, you never see her alone. She right. is almost always surrounded with one or two other bullies who think that whatever antics she's getting into are fantastic because they're for their entertainment. Mm-hmm. But on a real quest with real danger, I don't know if this is something Clarice would do. I kind of think it isn't, but I wonder if she might have told a cabin mate the actual words of the quest, of the uh, prophecy. In which case, I could very much understand why shallow friendships would not have stuck with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll definitely get to the prophecy later, because we don't know it until close to the end of the book, when Clarice finally tells Mm -hmm. Percy what she was told by the Oracle. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a really good point. I still don't like Clarice until the end of the entire series. I know. It's okay. There's one of the short stories that you guys will probably read is mm-hmm. a very uh, it definitely gives makes Clarice a little more fleshed out as a character. I feel like it gives her more screen time anyway. Mm-hmm. It would take place between Battle of the Labyrinth and The Last Olympian. Which is when I start to like her. Right. Okay. I she has she has room to grow, which mm-hmm. she does later on. Yeah, which is fair to say of all of the characters, I think. It's just more the matter of, like, we see Percy, we see Annabeth, we see Luke a lot more than we see Clarice. Mm-hmm. This is true. So, anyway. But while we're talking about Clarice, we do... Percy does eavesdrop on a conversation she has with Ares while they're aboard the ship. Um, we don't like Ares. No. Ares is... If we had to rank the parents... If we had to gr- if we had to rank the Olympians on their parenting skills, Ares would not be at the bottom of the list, but he would sure be close to it. Ares is maybe getting 15,000 tortilla slaps. 15,000 tortilla slaps? Mm-hmm. May I share with you a quote from the Lore Olympus series that I was just telling you about, which I have shown Maggie? Yes. A character is speaking to uh, Ares, and she calls him, you absolute trash can of a god. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that just about sums it up. Yeah, that sums up my feelings towards Ares. Uh, I have Aries feelings, but not for Percy Jackson Aries. Um, I have angry feelings towards this Aries, but he's a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, where is it? You're probably looking for page 155. I, I'm i on it. I'm trying to pull out there. Uh he raised his fist, even mm-hmm. though he was only a figure in the steam. Clarice flinched. Which is just about the same wording we get for Gabe. Right, at the end of The Lightning Thief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I would throw hands with Ares. Mm -hmm. As a mortal, I would throw hands with Ares. I think you would win. (laughs) My money's on Rachel. I don't think there would be a winner in that fight. (laughs) (laughs) Also fair. I still dislike Zeus more. Also fair. Well, Ares is just a slightly more diluted form of Zeus. Diluted as in with a, a T, not diluted, though. Also <laughs> he is possible. a little delusional. He is a little delusional. <laughs> he pisses me off. Yeah. I do think it's an, in- like, I'm, I'm not going to harp on this for forever, I promise. But I think it is worth noting that even Clarice, who's like the golden child of Ares at camp, right? Like, she seems mm-hmm. to do everything right. She gets all the praise a lot of times. Even she doesn't have a good relationship with her godly parent. And I think that kind of helps Percy and us as readers sympathize with her a little bit more. Even if we don't like her, it's like she is still a demigod just like everyone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. But yeah, Ares can get lost and I hope he chokes. I was going to say I don't hate Mars. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think that's fair from my very <laughs> Ares, like, went to Aries went to anger management school sometime in the Etruscan era and came out okay <laughs> in Rome. <laughs> I think you need to keep that line in the podcast though because that's perfect. <laughs> I think that needs to become one of our quote posts on Instagram. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're lot not wrong. <laughs> I could talk about the uh, Aries and Mars distinction for a long time, so you don't want to let me do that. We'll be so up what very I'm late. Hearing, what I'm hearing is that you will come back when we do the Heroes of Olympus series. Um, absolutely. Just to talk about like the lost hero alone, I could retell my story. <laughs> mm-hmm. I could probably. I mean, it wouldn't be exactly worded. But I could get you pretty close to the entire first page of the of the Lost Hero because I have read it so many times. I believe it. I have the entire letter from Truly Devious memorized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have no well, listen. If you read it every month, I'm surprised you don't have the whole book memorized. I'm impressed you get through it that often. I do the audiobook quite regularly. <laughs> oh yes, but. Yes, I do. I do love it. Can we talk about Tyson on the ship, though? Yes. The baby? Yeah, because Tyson is on the ship, and he he's, he's scared. He's scared, but also he, like, puts himself to work. He's like, oh, I can fix this. I can fix that. And he he does what is kind of expected of, of Cyclope, and that is, like, to build things, right? We see him constantly tinkering with something, but then we see him on the ship and it's like we see him doing what he was meant to do. Mm-hmm. I love Tyson. I also think you get a second look at this fact that Tyson, when um, when Percy and Annabeth are first considering whether or not Tyson can go on the quest with them, Percy is imagining Tyson freaking out at the first sign of danger because he's very easily flustered. He's very easily scared. And that is true of Tyson, but what we see throughout 
the books, and especially on that scene in The Ironclad, is that Tyson's reaction to being afraid of a real danger is to dive into it to protect his friends. Mm-hmm. Tyson is exactly as easily as fr- afraid as Percy thinks he's going to be, but his reaction is entirely different. He is more afraid from his two, for his two friends than he is for himself. Which I would say is a trait that he shares with Percy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, the reason that Tyson gets flustered is because he feels powerless. So in these situations, he knows that there is something he can do, and he can do it. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of... I, I get the impression that that helps with his, like, feeling afraid. It's like, okay, this is a scary thing that is going on, but... I know what needs to be done and I know that I can do it. So I'm going to do it and I'm going to save my friends. I I love Tyson. Go ahead. Which is what he does when the ironclad is destroyed by Charybdis. I love Tyson a lot. I think I sort of alluded to this in part one, but one of the reasons that I really love the sea of monsters is that The juxtaposition of Tyson and Polyphemus is a really, I think, well-crafted way to sort of narrow the definition of a monster, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I feel like the Lightning Thief really sets us up with what this world looks like, and every book in the remaining, every one of the four remaining books in the series revises that first concept. So like in this book, we look at and see a sort of narrowing of of the definition of what it is to be a monster. Later, we'll get to see Percy rethinking what it means to be a hero. We'll get to look at what it means to be mortal, what it means to be a god. And so it's sort of like the lightning thief sets us up and every time we think we've got it down, Rick goes, wait, let's think about that part of this a little more carefully. And I think part of that is just this really fun realization that a Cyclops, as Tyson is, is actually very well equipped to do a lot of very important things now that he's acting as a character as opposed to one of the monsters in this story. Like, Tyson is arguably the most useful if you want to use that word, person on this quest. They Mm -hmm. use his immunity to fire like at least 10 times throughout the story. He's the one who's able to talk to the, like talk to the sheep. I don't know, control the sheep, maybe walk through the sheep, whatever you want to put it. He's his enormous strength is used to save his friends tons of times. He's scared about being powerless, but he's actually the most powerful person on that quest in a lot of ways especially since percy at this point hasn't completely figured out his ocean powers yet he's getting there but it's nothing like we see him in later books so we really get to see what it looks like for someone like tyson to be acting on the quote-unquote good side and I just, I really love that about this story. That kind of relates back to one of my rants from The Lightning Thief, 
which now I can't remember if I kept it in our discussion or not, where I was talking about almost like the sanctity of life in the series and how we have the like tiers where it's like the gods are the most important, then it's the demigods, then it's the mortals. And then way down at the bottom, you have the monsters and we, or, or just the, the creatures and how we don't have this value of their life the same way we do of the other people in the series, right? Because Grover's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll come back as something else. And we have the monsters reappearing and there isn't this like quandary of, well, if I'm killing a monster, then I am killing something that is living in the same way that would be when we are fighting other demigods or we are fighting the gods. Mm-hmm. I think you even see Percy kind of come to battle with that idea a little bit in the book, because as he's fighting Polyphemus, he's noticing his similarities to Tyson. And that's, mm-hmm. I think it's the first time we've ever seen him hesitate to finish, like, a fight with a monster is like the first time he's tried to barter. Okay. I'll, I'll leave you alone as long as you let us leave. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of big thoughts about, or big feelings maybe is the better word. I don't know if they're good thoughts, but I have a lot of big feelings about like the fight with Polyphemus and everything with that. It's a really good, like, it just works really nicely, and I'm appreciative of it. But we haven't even gotten to that point in this story yet. I know. So things go poorly with Scylla and Charybdis, as things often do when there are monsters. The ship blows up, taking, we assume, Tyson with it. Um, Clarice gets on one escape raft, lifeboat. Um, Percy and Annabeth get on another, and they just get blown away by this explosion next thing we know percy and annabeth without tyson we are very scared for tyson we don't know where he is but percy and annabeth are washing up on the shore of a what looks like to be a resort and spa run by a woman named cece so They kind of have like a little bit of a turning moment where both of them are assuming that Tyson is gone. And Annabeth is like, look, I'm sorry. I feel really bad about how I treated him. I was wrong. He's not like, not like other Cyclopes. Like he, he was a hero and I wish I could have said that to him. Mm -hmm. And Percy also has a turning point here because he says on page 165, He'd given his life for us, and all I could think about was all the times I'd felt embarrassed by him and had denied that the two of us were related. And it is a little unfortunate that it took them them thinking Tyson had died for that realization to occur, but that is a really important turning point for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Annabeth tells Percy a little bit about the prophecy. We know that there it has something to do with a child of the big three turning 16. That's all that she will tell him. So they get to the resort and spa. They meet with Cece, the woman herself. And she... Actually, I'm sorry. This is my favorite line. Um, they're talking about like, well, do we go in? This place seems a little bit sketchy. I guess it couldn't hurt, Annabeth muttered. Of course it could, but we followed the lady anyway. 
you can shoehorn that in about five times into ev- any Percy Jackson book. Mm-hmm. It's like, huh, there's this lady who's offering us free food in the middle of New Jersey. Well, it probably couldn't hurt. Turns out she's Medusa. Well, I guess it could. I feel like the theme of all these books, if you had to look at one overarching theme, I think it's that Camp Half-Blood needs to send out their quests with better provisions. Because 75% of these encounters would not occur if the people on the quest weren't so hungry and desperate for help that they were willing to go into something that looked like a trap. Mm-hmm. Uh, Camp Half-Blood should not be sending miners on quests in general. Well, yes, but we're blaming the gods for that, not Camp Half-Blood. <laughs> yeah. So, spoiler alert, Cece's re- spa and resort turns out to be um, where Cersei lives, and she has been um, turning men into guinea pigs for a very long time. And so while Annabeth gets whisked off on her makeover, she looks at Percy and she says, you know what, let's help you unlock your true self. So she casts a spell and Percy gets turned into a guinea pig and trapped in a cage with some very scary looking guinea pigs. Annabeth comes back and she and Cersei have a confrontation, which I really love and I want to talk about more once I finish talking about this. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Yeah, and fortunately, Percy does not stay a guinea pig for the rest of the book. But it would be a short series. <laughs> it would be a short series. Or we could just continue the series with Percy as guinea pig being the hero. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I am very intrigued by Cersei. Because, I mean, she is definitely the, the antagonist in the scene. She's trying to stop the quest from continuing. So she acts as the antagonist. Um... And she also reads, like, a tabloid fashion magazine trying to tell Percy all of his faults and make him think there's something wrong with him so she can fix him, quote-unquote. But that's a total side point. But when Annabeth comes back, Annabeth is like, where's... Actually, first of all, so we get all this from guinea pig Percy's perspective. Um, He says, this is page 178. I almost didn't recognize her. And he describes what per- what Annabeth is dressed like. Um, he says she was wearing makeup, which I never thought Annabeth would be caught dead in. I mean, she looked good, really good. I probably would have been tongue-tied if I could have said anything other than reet, reet, reet. But there was also <laughs> something totally wrong about it. It just wasn't Annabeth. And I think it's important to note here that Percy kind of... It's, an, it's a moment where you realize Percy knows Annabeth better than I think Annabeth realizes. Where he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, she looks really good, but this isn't, like, the Annabeth that I know. And Annabeth immediately looks around and she says, where's Percy? I will say, whenever I read this book, I think this is the peak of the platonic Annabeth and Percy friendship. After this, it starts getting a little messy until they figure it out. But this is when they are not yet quite certain that they have crushes on each other. And they are actually a working team that are friends that care about each other. Mm-hmm. And it is one of my favorite books for that reason. Absolutely. 
So Cersei tries to convince Annabeth to stay on the island with her and become a sorceress. She says she has lots of potential, blah, blah, blah. She says, we are not so different, you and I. We both seek knowledge. We both admire greatness. Neither of us needs to stand in the shadow of men. I wrote in my margins, bold of you to assume Annabeth has ever stood in anyone's shadow. Like, that is where you're wrong there, Cersei. And she offers Annabeth immortality, which is the first of two times that Annabeth is given the chance to be immortal. Not in this book, but like across the series overall. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a kind of recurring theme throughout the series, but I digress. And Cersei keeps saying, like, I'll make you immortal. I'll make you powerful. Like, you could do anything you want. You don't have to be this demigod going on these measly little quests. And Annabeth keeps saying, where is Percy? What have you done to him? Finally, mm-hmm. she figures out what has happened to Percy, and she's able to defeat Cersei, save Percy, get him back into human form again. But what I really liked about this is Cersei says to Annabeth, you will have all you ever wanted. And I'm like, Cersei thinks she knows what Annabeth wants, but what she thinks Annabeth wants is not true. Annabeth wants to create like Annabeth her dream is to be an architect she wants to build something she wants to be remembered she wants to be recognized but Mm -hmm. it's not just about the power that is part of it but it's not just about power right it's also about relationships and we talked in the last episode about how Percy is very relational and that's why he enjoys quests so much because it's that bond he builds and that camaraderie Annabeth is also relational in a different way but still similarly like she wants stability she wants permanence in her relationships in the same way that she wants to build something permanent like physically and she she really wants a family more than anything and right now Cersei is directly threatening that by threatening Percy and for Annabeth it is more important for her to have that relationship than to have power. Mm -hmm. I think that only gets reinforced a little bit later in the book because not more than three chapters later, you get to see Annabeth's idea of a perfect world through the siren song. Mm -hmm. And Percy seeing it through her eyes doesn't even notice that she has redesigned Manhattan until halfway through the vision. The first thing he sees are Athena, uh, Annabeth's father and Luke waiting for her like a family. Can we point out, though, that in Annabeth's vision of a perfect world, Percy's not in it? No, you may not. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, you can, but I'm not going (laughs) to like it. Am I wrong? Here would be my argument. This is not just Annabeth's vision of a perfect world. It is also the siren's perspective of Annabeth's vision of a perfect world. Mm -hmm. And there are seams along the vision. Like Percy through it can see that the sirens, even though their faces are changing, have like weird remnants of their meals meals still caked on their faces. Mm-hmm. Like, it's yeah. not a pretty picture. I would art 
because the purpose of this song is to draw Annabeth in. I would argue that the introduction of Percy into that vision would show more of the cracks. Because Percy is actually right next to Annabeth at that moment trying to draw her back in. It would be sort of like introducing someone's alarm sound into their dream. You're going to wake them up. That's fair. Mm-hmm. That is actually a good transition because the next chapter is the sirens. Um, okay, but, but before just... you go, can I say something? <laughs> yes, of course. I have two comments. One, this is ridiculous, but I just need to point it out. This is every conversation anyone has ever had with their parents about their futures ever. And if mom listens to this, I'm sorry. But <laughs> this Cersei and Annabeth, anything you want to study, anything you want to be, my dear, an architect? Pa, Cece said, you, my dear, have the makings of a sorceress like me. It's like, you can be anything, <laughs> but only what I want you to be. <laughs> but on, like, the serious side of things, I'm just going to say that ever since reading Cersei, uh, the book by Madeline Miller, um, the scene where... Percy and Annabeth just released the guinea pigs to ransack the resort has never sat completely right with me. Yeah. It just makes me a little uncozy. Um, so in Madeline Miller's retelling of Cersei, and actually with a decent amount of, like, she's got a decent groundwork for this in, like, the metamorphoses and some other... Uh, older material um, mm -hmm. the reason Cersei gets into the habit of turning men into pigs is because men have been in the habit of washing up on her island and uh, assaulting her so gotcha. it is originally a method of self-defense so the fact that they just get to run rampant over the resort is a little uh... infuriating yeah. To be fair, in the Percy Jackson version of this, their idea of running rampant over the resort seems to be busting beach umbrellas. Mm -hmm. But This is another instance, though, where I think we kind of get a little bit of a sanitized... I mean, we get a lot of sanitized mythology in Percy Jackson, let's be real. Like, Medusa being Poseidon's girlfriend mm -hmm. is... Um, and I think this is another instance where we get a little bit of sanitation. Mm -hmm. um, a little over-sanitation. A little over-sanitation, yeah. And I think it's more done out of ignorance than malice, which doesn't necessarily make it better, but yeah. But we get the line... I'm glad you're not a guinea pig, which just makes me so happy. I know it's not the most romantic thing ever, but I think it's, again, like that peak platonic mm -hmm. Percy and Annabeth. Like, just Percy's, like, waiting for her to, like, be like, you're an idiot, why would you do this? And then she just gives him a hug, and she's like, I'm glad you're not a guinea pig. Mm -hmm. It, it fills my heart. So... Annabeth has just saved Percy, and now it's Percy's turn to save Annabeth from the sirens. Mm -hmm. 
They're sailing past the sirens next. And Annabeth is like, I want to hear what they have to say. And Percy's like, this is a bad idea. And Annabeth says, Odysseus did it. And Percy says, that doesn't mean it's not a bad idea. As a matter of fact, you've just reinforced my point. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Percy listens and he ties Annabeth to the mast of the ship and plugs up his ears so that he can't hear the song. And he they sail of course percy forgot to disarm annabeth and even though she's tied up she manages to get her knife and cut herself free and she starts swimming towards the sirens i don't entirely blame percy for that though no i don't either if one of them should have thought of that let's it be real it should have been annabeth this whole yes. this whole operation was her idea mm-hmm. yeah but First of all, Percy is so worried about her, which just breaks my heart. And mm-hmm. like, this is the gives underwater hug. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, but I want to go back a little bit to what you were saying earlier, Lydia, about the about what Annabeth sees on mm-hmm. from the sirens, like what they're what they're tempting her with, which is her perfect world that she has built and her perfect family, which is her mom. Her, her mom, Athena, her father, her mortal father, and Luke. Um, and we're wondering, why isn't Percy there? But I think... I think it's important for the story that Percy is not there. Because if you think about it, all three of these people, Athena, Annabeth's dad, and Luke, they have all left Annabeth. For in one way or another, they have all failed her. Athena's nowhere to be found. We don't even we don't even hear from her in these first two books. She's nowhere to be seen. Her dad, she does not have a good relationship with her dad. It's getting a little bit better, but it's not great. Luke has gone completely to the dark side, so to speak, and he left Annabeth and turned his back on her when she really looked up to him. And it's Percy who is the one who saves her. And it would have been so easy for him to say, Annabeth is gone. I need to finish this quest. But he puts himself in danger to save her life from the sirens. And I think that's kind of why she breaks down a little bit because Annabeth is starting to realize that Percy isn't going to turn his back on her like everyone else has. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like the sirens are showing her impossible desires Mm -hmm. but a friendship with Percy isn't impossible it's what's dragging her away from death yes and I think too in a way because the sirens are supposed to tell you like truths right like they're you're supposed to gain wisdom from them by hearing their song Mm -hmm. so in a sense Annabeth does gain some wisdom It's just, it has to come through a near-death experience that Percy saves her from. Like, it's kind of her wake-up call, almost, of I can trust, like, I think this is the moment where she really starts to trust Percy. Not that she distrusted him, like, for the beginning of the book, but, like, she's a little bit tentative around him in The Lightning Thief, and then they kind of come to an understanding, but she still seems to hold him at arm's length a little bit. Like, they're good friends, but she's like, I don't want to get too close to you because what if you turn out like the others? Mm -hmm. Talia's gone. Luke is gone. Her dad is gone. Athena is gone. 
And this is a moment where she realized Percy's not going to be like that. And she gets that because of the siren. So in a weird, twisted way, she does get some wisdom from them. Mm-hmm. Side note, Annabeth must be a really great swimmer. Yep. She outswims the son of Poseidon, and he has trouble getting her back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Rachel, you look like you're thinking. I would argue that it's because she can hear the sirens. You mean like the adrenaline? Like they are that they are pulling her towards them. So it's not just Annabeth's abilities. Oh, absolutely. But I think that if she was not a good swimmer when she jumped in, she would drown because a lot of people when they jump in after the sirens just drown. Yeah. Mhm. I certainly think the frenzy is because of the sirens. I'm just making a joke. Yeah. And I was just thinking it through. <laughs> <laughs> but I really like I really like the scene on Cersei's Island. I really like the scene with the sirens. I really like that these two scenes come right after each other. Mm. And I just really love Percy and Annabeth. And Annabeth starts crying. I know. Like and then I start crying. Yeah. I cry at the end of this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just want to give them all a hug. I was just thinking, when the ironclad blows up, Annabeth is on that raft. She has no idea that Clarice is okay. She doesn't know what's happened to Tyson. She has no idea what's happened to Percy at first. He gets hit on the back of the head and just falls into the ocean. If he couldn't breathe underwater, he would immediately die. And I guess one of the gods is smiling on them because they send some kind of current so that it's even possible for Percy to be floating near the raft. And just imagining what that felt like. Oh, that's Percy floating in the water over there, obviously unconscious. And she mm. had to fish him out. Oh, gosh. Sometimes you have to cry about Percy Jackson if you can't cry about the other things. Yes. And damn it, Rachel. Mm-hmm. I'll cross-stitch it on a pillow for you. Thank you. With a little trident. <laughs> I love it. Pause. We have in this chapter the whole Annabeth telling Percy about why she really hates Cyclops and how the whole like running away with Talia and Luke. Oh, yeah. We have and in the chapter before Annabeth being like, I'm sorry about Tyson. But then in this chapter, we have Annabeth opening up about why she doesn't like the Cyclope. Mm -hmm. And how they had been cornered and Talia was looking for Luke and Luke was looking for Annabeth and Annabeth was all alone and that further highlights the the scene with the sirens and why she's looking for those people right the people that are supposed to be the protectors of her and they weren't there like she was so tiny hiding by herself trying to get away from the, the cyclops I think what always breaks my heart about that scene is the tiniest thing when they're describing how they're looking like how the um, Cyclops is deceiving them 
Luke is the one looking for Annabeth. There is a previous version of this character who somehow, at like 15 years old, basically got put in charge of a seven-year-old little girl. He's Mm -hmm. separated and in danger, and his thought is, I need to find and protect this little girl. Yeah. The Cyclops has some knowledge of what is the most effective way to manipulate each of them because Mm -hmm. it pulls Annabeth's dad's voice right out of her head. At least that's how she describes it. And that was the most effective way to get Luke running in circles, this previous version of him. And that breaks my heart every time. As someone who works very closely with, uh, 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old kids, Mm -hmm. they are very protective, like just Mm -hmm. in general. And they won't say that. They won't say it like that. Doesn't really matter. Uh, Yeah, it's painful to watch because you will watch them sacrifice everything that they have to protect whomever they are looking for. And we have Luke doing that six years ago, and then we have Luke now, and it's the total opposite it's the flip side now i'm emotional about luke you know my feelings about luke maggie i know i know uh lydia i don't believe that luke can be saved but i believe that there could have been an intervention that prevented it from happening i think that Luke saves himself in the only way that matters to him. Hmm. I think that's fair. I never thought of it that way. But I definitely don't hate him as a character. He's a fantastic character. Mm -hmm. Incredible. But, like, not even just, like, for the plot of the story. Like, I would meet Luke. Mm -hmm. He'd kill me. He crafted a sword specifically so that he could kill me, which I consider a very big point in my favor. But still. (laughs) (laughs) Also, question just for the audience Um, And by the audience, I mean Maggie and or Rachel, if you have (laughs) any thoughts on this. Um, So when we are introduced to Luke's sword, Backbiter, Percy says, always says that he has a feeling someone died for that blade. Do we ever get any kind of payout? Like, do we ever find out who that was? No, and it bothers me. Well, I, if I had to make a wager, I would put money on this. It that was sorry, I, I dropped a rock. <laughs> Carry on. I would put money on this. I think it would have to be a demigod who died. If I had to say something, I would say that it was a figurative rather than a literal death, and I am thinking of a specific person. Who, if I mention, will spoil it. But um, she has a little uh, Medusa beanie in her front garden. Okay, I have an alternate interpretation. Percy says he has the feeling someone died while making it. Is it metaphorically talking about Luke? 
also like, possible. Luke almost having to kill the part of himself that is I don't want to say is a demigod because he's all, but like you know what I'm trying to say like he has to kill the part of himself that cares about the gods almost the part of himself that could be sympathetic yes Lydia <laughs> so if Luke is turning his back on western civilization uh, however problematic as that term might be but it's hard to not use it when talking about Percy Jackson Mm -hmm. um if luke is turning his back essentially on what he perceives as humankind the first mortal he had to kill was the mortal half of himself Ooh, i would only agree with that if he had his sword in the beginning of the lightning thief he may have had it and just not been able to show it freely because he was still trying to play the part of Hermes' head counselor, favorite yeah. kid in ha Camp Half-Blood. And as soon as he showed that sword, Chiron would have been no. <laughs> yeah, out of here. Because when do we assume that it was forged? Sometime right. while Percy was off on his quest? Or was it before then? So many questions. For a sword like that, I feel like even if it wasn't completed until the end of The Lightning Thief, uh, creation of it had to have started earlier. Mm -hmm. My statement still stands if it was the, the human bit of Luke because I said I would bet money on it being a demigod. That's true. True. I don't huh. think it was Luke's mom, though. Yeah, I just meant sort of metaphorically. Yeah. But you could also take that as a form of, like, killing the mortal part of himself, right? Like, severing himself from his mother. Mm-hmm. I just meant because um, I think the way Percy actually describes it, though, maybe I could grab the actual quote. Uh, let's see. It's when they're on the cruise ship and they notice okay or is it maybe that quote is actually in the lightning thief no it's in this book because i saw it earlier today i'm i and i think i marked it hold on i don't know if it's in this part or if it's at the end of the book though. yeah they make it on the cruise ship twice okay here it is Page 243. I didn't know how the blade had been made, but I sensed a tragedy. Someone had died in the process. That doesn't necessarily mean that the person forging the blade died. It could have been like a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. This is all tangential. I was just thinking about it. <laughs> no, because this is a question I had too. So much happens in these three chapters. We've got Percy playing the role of Odysseus because he's got to ride under the sheep to get into the cave, mm -hmm. um, which is what Odysseus does in the Odyssey. Annabeth gets to sneak in with her invisibility cap and Percy's like, lucky. Um, we've got sheep with big teeth. We've got Clarice making bad choices. Um... 
fighting a giant cyclops. Tyson returns. Yay. Which we're all glad to see him alive. Where do we want to start with this? I think we should start with Annabeth and Percy looking into the cave, looking at the situation, and Clarice being a dummy head. Yep, Clarice is a dummy head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so when they show up, um, Clarice is already there and she's trying to fight Polyphemus on her own, which, first of all, is a bad enough choice. Um, meanwhile, Grover is there dressed as um, a bride because, by mm-hmm. the way, in the meantime, the whole reason that Polyphemus hasn't eaten him yet is because he thinks Grover is a um, female cyclops and is wanting to marry her marry him he thinks grover is a female cyclops yes the the dude's blind Mm -hmm. just so we're throwing that out there thinks he wears goat scented perfume yes um that sounds so vile yeah Yeah. (laughs) i think Again, Clarice is not being intelligent in this scene. No. But it definitely fits her character, and it fits Annabeth's character, the way this plays out. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what book it's in, but Annabeth at one point makes the distinction for Percy between Ares and Athena because they are both considered the Greek gods of war. Mm-hmm. And she describes Ares as sort of the bluster and the chaos of battle. It's the raw emotions. Whereas Athena is more the side of uh, skill and strategy. Mm-hmm. And you see both of those play out in the way that these two different characters deal with Polyphemus. Because mm-hmm. Clarice... Never, it never occurs to Clarice to use trickery in this. There is, she is so oblivious to the idea of trying to trick Polyphemus that she doesn't even recognize that Grover has been doing just that. Yeah. She came and she to exposes fight Poly- Grover. Yes. She came to fight Polyphemus. She is going to fight Polyphemus. She doesn't care what's happening with him and Grover, so she's not going to try to sidestep that. She completely exposes him. Whereas later in the scene, we see Annabeth in her invisibility cap masterfully manipulating Polyphemus by pulling on this old rivalry and managing to stay out of thrown boulders, at least for a while, and it's just an interesting juxtaposition between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a little disappointed in Clarice here. Like, come on, you should know better. But you're right. She definitely plays into the bluster of her godly parentage. Mm-hmm. Must like, much like Ares would um, brag and gloat, so does Clarice here. This is also one of the not frequent times during the Percy Jackson series 
that we see Annabeth get hurt. Usually oh, yeah. it's Percy. I can think of three times off the top of my head, which is, I'm sure there are more, but right now I can think of three times that Annabeth gets hurt. Percy averages about five times a book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's no Jason Brace. He at least stays conscious most of the time. Yeah, it, he hasn't had a real strong argument with Bricks just yet. <laughs> if you know, you know. Mm -hmm. But he also ends the world with a nosebleed, so. You know. I do know. I've read about it. I just haven't read it yet. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but yeah, you're right. I I never really thought about that, but Annabeth doesn't get like seriously injured very often. And it's not because she's not in danger. Right. I almost wonder if the threats that she often deals with are a little bit more less outwardly violent, generally speaking. I think there's certainly an element of that. Like, depending on who you're fighting, you pick your most suited player, you know? Mm -hmm. So Annabeth gets the riddles and the strategy games that Percy could never hope to do anything with. Even though he's a lot smarter than he gives himself credit for, which I will go into more in another scene later in this book. Absolutely. But, um, whereas Percy usually gets thrown into the one-on-one -on -one duels because he's really good at that. But I think mm -hmm. I also don't want to discount the fact that Annabeth, like, people comment that she is very good with that knife that she wields. She's mm -hmm. also very good at reading what is happening, which I feel like contributes a lot to her being able to stay out of trouble. Mm-hmm. So and Annabeth being go ahead. No, you continue. I was gonna say Annabeth being good with a knife is a bigger testament to her skill than you might think, especially because as Greek demigods, and I I'm might be a little bit wrong on this, so forgive me, but they normally use like bigger swords and spears and like other larger weapons. So a knife like what Annabeth has for much closer combat would be it would be difficult to get in with that so the fact that she is so skilled with it is even more a testament to her ability than one might think also add on top of that unlike percy to fight a monster she has to get in really close mm -hmm. which makes it even more of a credit to her that she is not getting hurt more often than percy is right but anyway, all this was triggered by Percy being cute and terrified of the fact that Annabeth seems to have gotten hurt in the battle with Polyphemus. Mm-hmm. Also, complete tangent. I am so sorry, Rachel. You'll probably cut this out. <laughs> I feel like having reread The Lightning Thief, I have just now realized that there is no way that celestial bronze sets off metal detectors. And here's why. We know Percy manages to get back to, um, after he's uh, retrieved the lightning bolt, and they all get on a plane to go back to Olympus. Right. 
Percy can disguise Riptide as a pen. Annabeth cannot do that with her her knife. And we know she has the same knife. We're not talking about different ones because it's a significant knife, which we will find out later on. How does she get it through TSA? (laughs) I was on a plane when I read that and I went, there is no way. Can you just imagine, like, ma'am, you keep setting off the alarm for some reason, but we can't find anything. It's like, huh, that's weird. Like, I mean, I guess for that matter, how did the um, how did the lightning bolt get through TSA? Yeah. How did Grover get through TSA? <laughs> that's the real question. Yeah, you have to take off your shoes. The mist is powerful stuff, man. Maybe he has pre-check so he doesn't have to take off his shoes. That wasn't a thing in 2005. I was going to say, did that even exist in 2005? I don't think so. Actually, TSA was probably more strict in 2005 than it is now. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, there's that. Sorry. Uh, All right, we need to start keeping a running list of questions to ask Rick Riordan, should we ever (laughs) meet him. He lives in Boston. Hey, want to go take a road trip? <laughs> I mean, it's not that much of a road trip for me, but I, I know I'm saying where. we'll come to we'll come yeah, to we'll you, come to and you. then the three of us can go um, hunt down Rick Riordan. In you Boston. can come visit me anyway. <laughs> this is also true. Yeah, but anyway, fought Polyphemus. Annabeth got hurt. Uh. Percy and Clarice charge Pomolyphemus rope bridge. Yes. And and Percy gets the better of him. Mm-hmm. And this is when we have Percy's like crisis of identity of I can't hurt. I, I can't hurt him. Like he's too much like Tyson. Mm-hmm. And he's also a son of Poseidon. Yes, Maggie. I need to I, I have I have things to say about this. Because I love it and I hate it at the same time. So Percy is getting ready to deal the final blow to Polyphemus. And this is on page 219. Please, no, the Cyclops moaned, pitifully staring up at me. His nose was bleeding. A tear welled up in the corner of his half-blind eye. My sheepies need me, only trying to protect my sheep. He began to sob. I had won. All I had to do was stab. One quick strike. Kill him, Clarice yelled. What are you waiting for? The Cyclops sounded so heartbroken, just like like Tyson. He's a Cyclops, Grover warned. Don't trust him. I knew he was right. I knew Annabeth would have said the same thing. But Polyphemus sobbed, and for the first time it sank in that he was a son of Poseidon, too. Like Tyson, like me, how could I just kill that? How could I just kill him in cold blood? And then he tries to make a deal with Polyphemus, like, "Look, we just need the golden fleece. I will let you live if you let us take it." And Polyphemus says, "Sure, that's fine. Just let me let me protect my sheep. Let me live and take care of my sheep." And as soon as Percy backs off, Polyphemus strikes back and tries to hit Percy off of the cliff. And he says, foolish mortal, 
you think you can take my you think I can take my fleece blah 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 etc etc um and Percy gets backed into a corner and this is when Tyson comes back to save Percy and he says bad polyphemus not all cyclopes are nice as we look but I really like something about this scene because I totally forgot I thought Percy for a second I forgot the rest of the book and I thought Percy actually let Polyphemus live like I thought that was the end mm-hmm. and it's not and I almost feel a little bit bad for Polyphemus because like I think part of this is um an extension of my reading of the odyssey maybe Mm -hmm. because polyphemus in the odyssey is just like out here living his life until Mm -hmm. odysseus shows up and causes trouble like i i always think about how in emily wilson's translation and i only thought of this because just looking at it a minute ago but she calls she titles that book it's be help if i could go to the table of contents please she titles that book of the Odyssey a pirate in a shepherd's cave with Polyphemus being the shepherd and Odysseus being the pirate who is coming in to raid. Now, Polyphemus is not exactly hospitable, right? He does kill Odysseus's men, but Odysseus was trespassing. Yes, Lydia? Odysseus commits the same crime that the suitors commit, which he kills them for. Yes. Sorry, that's all. Nope, that's a good take. So, anyway, all that to say, I do feel a little bit for Polyphemus because anytime I think I know what you mean though, because if it weren't for the fact that Polyphemus seems to be enjoying a steady uh meal plan of satyrs, he's not bothering anybody. Right. Like the idea that he's just on the island with his fleece and his sheep is like it shouldn't be bothering anyone. He's just minding his own business. Mm-hmm. Rick allows us to stay on the side of the heroes here by making him also um an eater of satyrs like Grover. So that we right. can we can get behind, like, okay, this isn't a good guy that we're just barging in on. Mm-hmm. But it reminds me, one of the parts of this that does give me trouble is when Percy and Annabeth first see the fleece on the tree when they're first viewing the island. Um, let me see if I can get the exact page for you. Is it when okay. they first get to the island? Yeah, it's on page 202. Um, they're looking at the prosperity on the island. Uh, and Percy asks, if we take it away, will the island die? Annabeth, and it says, Annabeth shook her head. It'll fade. Go back to what it would be normally, whatever that is. I felt a little guilty about ruining this paradise, but I reminded myself we had no choice. Camp Half-Blood was in trouble. And Tyson, Tyson would still be with us if it wasn't for this quest. And I have a little bit of trouble with that paragraph. Because 
again, Percy, I love you. But what he's saying is because I need it, I have to take it. Mm-hmm. I have no choice but implicit in that is that the needs of Camp Half-Blood are more important than the needs of whatever this island uh, mm-hmm. are. It's... We're, go ahead. I was just going to say it echoes a bit of, like, colonialism. Like, I'm going to take what I need without really thinking about what gets left behind. And we appreciate that Percy is even thinking about that, but still, it's just, it's rough. This furthers my point that there is not a sanctity of life for monsters and other creatures. I agree with you. But I want to offer a little bit of a counterpoint. Not really a counterpoint, but more of as like a... Just another point. Because it kind of also goes back to what you were saying earlier, Lydia, about um, how we're narrowing the definition of what a monster is in this book. And I think Tyson, if as a character, in some ways also serves... Rather, obviously, I think he serves as a foil for Polyphemus, right? Mm-hmm. And I almost wonder if the inclusion of Tyson being a Cyclops is a way of saying we are going to make this a, like, the world that Percy and his generation of demigods and heroes are trying to make is a world where monsters can be heroes, too. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that is, that might be a bit of a stretch. I will admit that. And I don't think that necessarily excuses these feelings of like, you know, taking, taking from someone else to benefit yourself. And those like echoes of colonialism that you were mentioning. But I do, I I do also think there is something to be said for how we're starting to build up this idea of, what is the world going to look like when these heroes finally have not control, but more power when they have the power to change things? Mm. I don't know. Is it a world where heroes can, I'm sorry, where monsters can just live out their lives the way they want without demigods just coming in and ransacking their homes? I don't know. I think... One thing I will say, I don't know if this is against your point, Rachel, or if it's just alongside it, but Percy very much does not look for trouble in these series. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of references to, and I saw this bizarre thing that must have been a monster, and we, we're not charging around looking for fights. I mean, maybe someone can come up with an instance that I'm forgetting, but as far as I can remember, I don't think Percy really starts any fights with monsters. They generally, and again, I'm not saying there might be an instance or two that I've forgotten because they're fighting like 10 monsters every book. But 
generally speaking, the demigods seem to be defending themselves more than they are attacking monsters. In which case, I don't know if it's a sanctity of life issue as much as trying to stay alive personally. But there is certainly that weight of like, I mean, we're first starting to see the inklings that some demigods are uh, flocking to Luke's side. Mm -hmm. When they end up in a fight, they do think more carefully about like, am I willing to take this person's life than they would over a monster? That's definitely true. Yeah. In the initial incarnation of this conversation, I did talk about how the the kind of big issue is the lack of remorse or the lack of sympathy mm-hmm. and the overall lack of caring that a life was taken, even if that life will come back. Mm-hmm. So it neither disproves my point nor supports it. That's fair. Yeah. I think... As a general rule in the Percy Jackson universe, that's absolutely true. I do think particularly from Percy, we do get a good amount of sympathy after the fact from a lot of monsters that he encounters. Mm -hmm. Because we've been saying Percy has this huge heart. He is extremely sympathetic to all these stories of monsters and mortals wronged by the gods not the least because Mm -hmm. he knows a lot of people who have been wronged by the gods i think one of the big themes in this percy jackson universe is that we all have the same backstory it's just what we're doing with it right i don't really struggle with them taking the fleece in particular it's just that that paragraph i feel like echoes a larger issue in Greek mythology and really in a lot of hero-centered stories, whether they're mythological or not. And it reminds Mm -hmm. me of it whenever I read it. Yeah. It's not so much that they take the fleece, it's more the way that it's written, I feel like. Like, like the, the kind of language that is used there feels very reminiscent of more problematic... I would agree. I am almost glad that Rick does it that way because it feels like an acknowledgement. But I definitely see what you're saying. I think it could probably be written in a way where that wasn't an issue. It's just whether or not that's something you want, you know? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So we do defeat Polyphemus and... He is left on the island as they sail away. They're sailing away on the ship, and then Clarice, in true Odysseus fashion, taunts Polyphemus from the boat, and Polyphemus throws one last boulder towards them and smashes the ship. Fortunately, they're saved by the hippocampi, and they wash up in Florida, because what does Percy say? Uh, Chiron um, says that most strange things wash up in Florida. <laughs> yes, which is feels like an accurate statement. Mm-hmm. Sorry to anyone who listens in Florida, but I also feel like this is a generally accepted statement. 
Hey everyone, as it seems to be a recurring theme with our podcast, we actually had to split this episode into two additional parts. So we have a three episode special for you for Sea of Monsters. Please join us next week for the final part of this podcast, and we will see you then. And there's my dog for you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'm Not the Book Expert, But She Is. You can find us online at bookexpertpod.wordpress.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at bookexpertpod. If you enjoy our show, please consider leaving us a review on our website or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll see you again soon.